0: So much for this time of worship uh, that we could just focus our minds and our hearts on you. And I pray now, God, as we look into your word, God, that you would give us, uh, truly give us wisdom. Uh, your spirit would lead and guide the things that come out of my mouth and uh, that we would be open to what the spirit has to say to us as individuals. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, how many of you have watched that, watched that series, The Crown? Did anybody watch The Crown at all? It's about the, it's about the early years of Queen Elizabeth, my My wife and I, it's really good. My wife and I watched it last week and and last year, I mean, and we really enjoyed it. But one thing I really realized when I was watching this thing, I, I realized that being as an American, it's kind of hard to kind of relate to the whole royalty thing you know it's hard to understand what it's like to have a monarchy and someone ruling you know one person having so much power and authority like so i know a lot of people understand that in the world but for us here i think that's a little more difficult and really that's what really kind of catches me because i love kind of my favorite kind of movies and stuff like medieval and stuff like that so what always catches me when i watch a tv show or movie that has um but depicts royalty in them is i always notice it's interesting how people respond to them you never notice how they respond Swan, to people that are, are royalty, um, how they respect them, the bowing, the curtsying—I don't know if that was right—curtsying, all these things, they show them utmost respect, and they humbly obey them. Yes, you know, yes, sire. No, actually, I was watching just the other night, *Man in the Iron Mask*, Yeah, one of my favorite movies. I was watching that, and how everybody just, you know, all over. Okay, whatever he wants. I'm just not just not used to that as an American thinking about that kind of thing. But really, what it does, it makes me think about. How we as followers of, Jesus, followers of Jesus, how we respond or how do we react to him, the ultimate sovereign? Because, you know, I, and one thing I noticed in that movie too, they call her uh, the sovereign. And, you know, they do That's so what they still call the queen is the sovereign. And it's interesting, this word sovereign, um, when we talk about sovereign and God being sovereign, what it means is he's the one with ultimate power and control and authority over all things. Often I hear people will will talk about, I think in men's Bible study the other night, someone said, what does sovereign mean? This is what sovereign means. This is what it means that God is sovereign, having ultimate power, control, and authority over all things. So How do we respond to that? Because the reality is that if we believe that Jesus truly is sovereign, that he has ultimate power and control and authority over all things, including our very lives, then really that reality should have a huge impact on how we respond to him and how we think about him and all that, but especially how we respond to him. so, So what should that look like? How should we respond to Jesus our sovereign, the ultimate sovereign. Well, this morning was we're going to be looking uh, once again in Matthew here. Uh, we're going to get a clear idea of what it looks like by how these people respond in these two stories we're going to look at, how they respond to his authority and how, how uh, his power and how when they recognize him, when they finally recognize that, oh, he is The Messiah, when they recognize who He is, they respond in a certain way, and I really believe this is a great lesson for us how we should respond. You know, and once again, God, Jesus is also going to model authority for us. Remember, we've been talking about how His authority, the kingdom of heaven, is really. diametrically opposed to how we think of power and authority and all that. So he's going to really model that also in what we look at here. Now, in the last couple chapters, we've seen how Jesus is slowly making his way to Jerusalem, okay? He's begun to focus his attention on really what is about to take place. Remember we talked last week, he said he even told, he's even in the process of all this, he's told his disciples at least three times about what is coming, that they're going to go to Jerusalem that he's going to be mocked. He's going to be on trial. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be killed. He's told them this. So that time is coming and he's going to be condemned and all that stuff that he's letting them know. Well, today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus finally gets there. That all this stuff that he's been telling them is going to happen, Jesus is now going to enter Jerusalem. He's finally there. And really what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the last week until, we've been in this series for what, seven years? No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, We're the last chunk of Matthew as we're going through Matthew. Really, this is the whole last week of his life, the Passion Week, they call it. That's what we're going to be looking at. That's what's starting uh, today, okay? Really, it's what's happening now is the culmination of all of Jesus' three years of ministry is coming to a head right now. And we're only on chapter 21, and there's a bunch more. But like we said, we'll probably be into this till February or March still. So there's quite, there's quite a lot uh, coming. So let's start. Let's let's dive right in and look at how the, he models this and how people respond. Okay, look at uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, when Jesus, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, "The Lord needs them," and He will send them at once. Now remember, Jesus and His disciples—they have just left Jericho. Okay, which is the last major settlement until they get to Jerusalem and start making that kind of that three thousand foot elevation climb to get to, the, to Jerusalem. And remember that they're also uh, a part of this larger crowd. It's not just Jesus and disciples. Remember, this is the Passover is coming. So they're a part of this big giant crowd of people that are coming from all over to celebrate the Passover. And we see now that as he gets closer to Jerusalem, they come to this small village Of Bethpage, probably just only like a mile or two outside the city walls. I have a little map here. You can see it's really just right outside, and this is where this is all going to take uh, place. Now, it's it's, uh, no surprise that Jesus chose the week of Passover to do this, Okay, we got to understand there, Jesus doesn't just do stuff randomly. It doesn't surprise us that he chooses the week of Passover to, uh, to go to Jerusalem in a move that really will culminate, like I said, all of his ministry. I mean, because here's what's going on. During, during Passover, the population of Jerusalem could, could go up five times. It could just get massive. They, some people were saying, I was reading, over a million people could be in Jerusalem at this time to celebrate uh, the the Passover. So really, this is a perfect setting for Jesus to draw attention to himself and to reveal his authority to the masses, okay? This is a great time to do that. And we're going to see, really, in the next few sermons, we're going to see that he even ramps up some of his confrontations with the religious people, religious leaders as well. So Jesus is really going for it now. He knows that this now's the time. It's really interesting, though, because remember, we've seen that Jesus really has not tried very hard to make himself very popular, has he? Actually, he's tried really hard to do the exact opposite. He's in a in a sense, he's really tried to, to keep uh, his identity somewhat on the down low because he's been letting people know. But remember, he even when he healed the lepers. Remember, he healed the blind. Uh, he's he told them, "Go and but don't tell anyone." Isn't that interesting? You would think you'd think he would say, see what I did? Ta-da! Go tell your friends and neighbors. i will be here all week. Try the veal. No, he didn't do that. He's he's wanted to keep it on the down low a little bit. I think one of the reasons, because he wanted to be able to minister to people. He wanted to come alongside people. And if he got hugely popular right at the beginning of this ministry, there's no way. He couldn't go into a town. He couldn't go anywhere. And he was already facing that, even though he was telling people to keep it on the down low a little bit. So this is interesting that he, that he would actually do this, but this, this makes sense now. He's, he's just going to go for it, okay? Well, the time is for keeping things hush-hush and all that are over. It's done. That quietness, he's ready to go for it now. So his actions from here on out really are going to be a deliberate uh, pronouncement or a deliberate way of presenting himself as the long-awaited Messiah, okay? No holds bar from here on out. And he begins this whole thing with this elaborate entrance into Jerusalem. Okay? It, it gets really kind of weird. It gets kind of crazy. And, but to prepare for this whole thing, he pulls two of his disciples aside and he tells them to go into this village that's just ahead of them, where they will find a donkey and its colt. Thank you, Devin, for telling me what a colt was, a male child, I guess a young male, I don't know. Uh, yes, thank you and uh, and, um, and untie them and bring them to him, and if anybody asks you, "Hey, what are you doing? Why are you taking that?" He tells them, "Just tell them that the Lord needs them, and he'll let, he'll let them go now. Uh, I read all sorts of things about this, but it's possible that Jesus might have had someone prepared, you know, ahead uh, of them that kind of prepared the way for this to happen. Um, Someone who have already, he knew already kind of prepared them. Could have been his omniscient power that kind of made this whole thing happen. Either way, the point isn't how that, how he gets these animals. That's not the point at all. The point is Why? The point is, why does Jesus go and get these two animals? Was, was it because he was all of a sudden tired of walking and wanted to ride the last mile or so into Jerusalem? Could that, could that have been it? I don't think so, because Jesus and his disciples walked everywhere all the time. I mean, you never hear of Jesus, yeah, they jumped on the back of a oh, carriage. Or they, no, never. And they just walked about 100 miles, believe it or not, to get to Jerusalem. So I don't think Jesus was looking to rest his feet just for this little while at all. I think this was very deliberate. This was a very deliberate act by Jesus. Look at verses four and five. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, The foal of the beast of burden. So here we see Jesus is quoting the prophet Zechariah and his prophecy concerning the coming Messiah and what it's gonna look like when the Messiah comes to Jerusalem. He says, in this in this quote, he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout daughter, Jerusalem. Now, Zion, that represents the Jewish people, okay? Jerusalem and the Jewish people. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey on a colt a fowl. So what he's doing here, he's quoting from Zechariah. But notice something here. I hope if you notice that there's a little difference here. Zechariah includes the Messiah not only coming to them lowly, and humble. But Zechariah says he's going to come with righteousness and he's going to be victorious as well. Meaning that he will establish this universal peace and worldwide dominion. Yet Matthew doesn't mention that. Matthew doesn't say anything about this righteousness or victorious. Why? Why doesn't he bring that in? Doesn't that sound awesome? He's going to be lowly and humble and righteous. No, that's going to be lowly. And he just keeps it there. You see, the Jewish people, and we've talked about this, the Jewish people of Jesus' day envisioned this conquering Messiah that would bring peace through all this domination, through domination in order to deliver the people from this oppressive Roman rule. They're expecting him to swoop in, really. More like on a, you know, you wouldn't, you, I guess in one of these movies, now I'm going back to my movies, you wouldn't see the king going in a little donkey. it he comes. He wouldn't do that. Well, he'd be on some big white steed, right? He'd be on a big white horse coming in. saying, no, that's not going to happen. He doesn't even talk about the victorious part. He doesn't talk about it because remember, Jesus has been teaching that the kingdom of heaven does not operate by human conventional thinking or human conventional means. It doesn't work that way. Jesus indeed will be completely victorious. He will be. And he will bring peace and salvation. Yet Matthew, remember, he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And he he wants them to understand that he will do this through humility and through meekness and not through this domination, not through intimidation or coercion. Remember, Jesus even told us back in chapter 11, remember, he even said he described himself as what? As humble and gentle. This is not what they're expecting. This is just not, it's a different Messiah than they're anticipating all together. Yet through his death, yet he will ultimately be victorious through all this. So let's look at how this request plays out. Jesus says, go get this donkey, okay? Look how it plays out. It says in verse 6 and 7, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So the disciples go, they, they bring this donkey and the young colt to Jesus, and they lay their cloaks on him, and Jesus sits on, on one of them, uh, kind of like a saddle, ready to go. Ready. Actually, this, what they're talking about here, he actually rides in on the colt that's never been ridden before. This young little colt that's never been, been ridden before. There's all sorts of significance to that, but that's even more humble. He doesn't even take the mama He rides on the little baby that's never been ridden before. I'm sure it's like his sandals are dragging on the dirt on the way in, you know? He's like riding that thing. Very interesting how he does this. See how he's picturing all this up? So the disciples do this. Now the focus of the story turns to the crowd, okay? Now it's going to turn to the crowd that's been walking with Jesus towards Jerusalem, and it turns towards their response. What is their response now to Jesus? Okay, let's look at verses 8 and 9. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay. So in uh, seemingly to finally recognize that Jesus is this long awaited Messiah and their king. Things literally turn into this royal uh, procession. Okay, it just gets crazy all of a sudden, and all the people, the the crowd around. Can you imagine just the picture? They're going, oh, it's him. This is who we've been waiting for. They're laying down their they're laying their cloaks down. It says that they get are cutting branches off of trees and they're putting them down on the ground. It's like it's like they're laying down their version of a red carpet. For their king, this royal entrance is what they're trying to do. Come on, our king, yes. They're just, yeah, you are the guy, we get it. The crowd began to shout, Hosanna, which means save us now, or save us, we pray. It's like basically what the crowd was doing, was saying, was doing, praising him, saying, hallelujah, our savior is here, yes, save us now, finally. That's what they're saying. This is no small thing. They were just going, oh, yeah, he's here. Yay. No, they were ecstatic about this. And by calling him the son of David, what the crowd was doing was acknowledging Jesus's messianic identity. They got who he was. Okay? And he says that, he, that they understood that he was this long-awaited heir to the throne. And the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that's an Old Testament reference to a king that was leading the way to the temple in order to meet God and everybody following them and being so excited about that. And lastly, the part that says, Hosanna in the highest shows that, re- that people actually regarded Jesus. They were looking at him as a gift from God Himself. And they were praising God and thanking Him for sending the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. So you see what's going on here? These people are realizing this, this is it, this is the guy and they can't help but go crazy. Now, even though they're acknowledging that Jesus is the long awaited Messiah, they don't, obviously, they don't understand this whole how the kingdom operates like we talked about. They're ready for him. They're probably thinking, all right, ride in that donkey because we know a tank is coming next, right? know, they don't understand. They think something bigger is going to come. They're expecting him to offer the solution to simply their cultural and their economic and their political problems. That's what the Jews were believing at the time, okay? He's going to get us out of this Roman rule, and we're finally going to rule, and our problems will be over. But that's not why Jesus came. He came to offer a solution instead to their sin. He came to offer them reconciliation and peace with God. You guys, this is so important for us to remember as well. Because I think at times, I know I do, I think we struggle with allowing Jesus to be the kind of sovereign king over his kingdom and over our lives that he really wants to be. I think that often for us, Jesus being our king and having complete authority over our lives means that because he's in complete control, because he's got everything under control, he's automatically supposed to solve our problems and make our life easier. Ever found yourself there before? God, you know what's going on. I'm, you're my king. You've got it all under control. So why is this happening? Why is this going on? You shouldn't be operating like that because if you really are good. It wouldn't be hard. That's what we think. We easily go there. And the problem is that when we let that belief dominate our mindset, really what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for frustration, for disappointment, and even resentment towards God. It's because we think that He's going to be this certain way. Because we completely misunderstand the realities of our king and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and what his sovereign rule is supposed to look like. You see, Jesus didn't come to solve all of our problems and to make our lives easier. Nobody leave. I know you know that. He he did not come to do that. He came for something so much greater to offer us a solution to our sin, to offer us reconciliation and peace with God, to be our sovereign king, to be our king who is in complete control and authority over our lives in every way, meaning that he will use. And And here's what this means meaning he will use his power, his wisdom, and his authority in whatever way seems best to him for his glory and for our good. That's what God that's what it means that God is our sovereign king. He's going to use that th- that power. He's going to use that authority. He's going to use that control that he has For his glory and for our good. And we don't have to blink an eye and wonder if that's not going to happen. That's what our perfect sovereign king is here came for. And the reality is when we let that truth dominate our mindset, something amazing happens. Something amazing happens when we focus on that God, he's my king, and you're in control. When we allow ourselves to soak in the truth that our king, Jesus... Jesus has not only provided a solution for our sin, but has complete sovereign control over our lives, we can't help but give him what we deserve, what he deserves, and what we so want to give him. You know what that is? Wholehearted praise. We can't help but do that. To praise the Lord essentially means to wholeheartedly give thanks and honor to the Lord for who He is and for what He has done. That's what it means to praise the Lord. To wholeheartedly give thanks and honor to Him for who He is and for what He has done. You're thinking, Rob, this is is so simplistic. What are you you talking about? I'm at church. Of, Of course, I understand we're supposed to praise the Lord. We just did that for 20 minutes for crying out loud. But I think we miss it. I think we really miss it. And we're going to see more and more how Jesus wants us to get it more and more. Because this is what's happening with these people that are with Jesus. When they realized who he was, and they didn't even realize who he was, if you think about it. But in their minds... From what they could understand, oh my gosh, you know who this is? They could not help but respond with praise to their king, even though they misunderstood what he was going to do. Man, how much more us that know, we know the end of the story. We know who he is. Shouldn't be our, our life be a life of praise? I love that song. Your praise shall ever be on my lips. I love that. That's so true. Well, as a result of all this craziness going on that's out, outside, remember they're entering, you know, can you imagine people up on the wall looking, going, what is going on? It's not Macy's Day Parade time yet. They're thinking, What is happening out there? So this is all going on, and Jesus' entrance into the city is causing quite a stir. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we see that once Jesus enters um, this, uh, this city, he's faced with a whole different group of people now, okay? The crowd that was with him was comprised mostly of people that had come down north from Galilee to Jerusalem and they they were familiar with his ministry. They had heard the stories. Most of them had probably seen a lot of the things that had gone on. They understood what was going on. The people of Jerusalem, although they knew who Jesus was, because believe it or not, it's not recorded in Matthew, he had already cleansed the temple once at the beginning of his ministry. So they knew they had heard of him and, and they'd seen him, but they were not aware of all that had transpired, all the teaching that he had done, all the things that we have looked at, the Sermon on the Mount, all these amazing things they weren't aware of yet. So when the people hear this praising going on and they see that it's directed at this guy dragging his feet on a little colt, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> They're like, what is happening here? We don't understand it. It says the city was stirred up. Really, that word means that the whole city was shaken. That's how, that's, how, that's how impactful the praise of these people of Jesus was. It was absolutely shaking the city. It was having such an impact on them. They couldn't help but notice. And you know what? Isn't it so true? I don't know if you've ever been, hopefully you have been experienced this, where you have experienced what happens when people are exposed to people that are wholeheartedly praising the Lord. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you're just caught up on a Sunday morning or you're caught up at something you're at and people are praising the Lord? And you're just like, oh, you're just you're just caught up, you're just caught up into it. Think about someone who doesn't know the Lord, someone who doesn't know Jesus coming into a setting. Where people are so aware of their king, so aware of their sovereign king, and they're praising him like crazy. How can it not cause them to go, uh, first of all, some are going to go, these people are weird. Other people are going to go, uh, I need to know what's going on here. What is happening here? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? When we're, when people walk into it, that's the kind of church we want to be. That's why we're, uh, we're we're looking to hire somebody, even though, awesome worship. Just so, so, so good, Denise. So great to have you and your family here. And we have people in here every week that are so good to help us. We want to hire someone that's going to be here all the time and help shape how we praise and how we worship God so that people in Pacifica come visit our church. When we invite people, we're not worried that, oh, is it going to be showy enough? No, we know that we have a church of not just people that like to praise, but we have a praising church. I know many of you want to see this area reached for Christ. One of the main ways that that's going to happen is as people see us living our lives and responding to our sovereign king with praise. It can't help. It can't, look what it did here. And they didn't even totally understand. Can you imagine when people walk into a place that's, oh, my king? That's what he's saying here. That is what is happening. That's what's going on with all these people that are being exposed to this wholehearted worship. It shakes people up, okay? It moves them. It causes them to want to know more. It causes them to be curious, or it's going to cause them to go, I want nothing to do with that because the gospel is offensive. But there's got to be something. There's got to be the praise. Not fake, but coming from the fact that we are our king, our sovereign king. So the crowds tell the people, hey, this is a prophet. This is Jesus. You know, he's a prophet, but basically he's a spokesman for God. (laughs) That's who he is. And get this, he comes from this little dinky place in Galilee called Nazareth. Once again, Jesus, you know, wasn't like, and yeah, you know who he is? You haven't heard of him yet? Oh, He grew up, you know, in the palace. No, he's dragging his feet on a little donkey, colt. And he came from a little podunk town. Yet he is the one that's going to be their king amazing. See how it just blew people away? Their categories were like thrown off. And I think our world is like that. They think when they think about Jesus, I, I encourage you and challenge you, go ask a friend who doesn't know, any, you know is not a believer in Christ and say, what do you think about Jesus? You're going to get a whole mess of different, all sorts of answers. He's a good guy, whatever, weird, you know, or all that kind of stuff. But when we're praising that king, Man, it shines a light on who he really is. Okay, so the crowd tells him this is who he is. Now, now Jesus is going to do something that truly demonstrates his divine authority. Now he's going to really go into action. Okay, look at verses twelve and thirteen, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he said to them, "It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer." but you have, you make it a den of robbers. So once Jesus goes, gets into Jerusalem, we don't know how long it took him. If he probably did it that same day though, he goes to the, directly to the temple in order to not only show his divine authority, but why the Messiah came. Okay, just in this one act, we're going to see a lot more as the weeks progress. But this one act, you see, for the Jews, the temple, I have a picture of the temple there, the temple which not only at the time was probably one of the most magnific- magnificent structures in the world, really the temple rep- represented the very essence of the Jewish people, of who Israel was. It was the dwell- for them, it was, the, it was the dwelling place of God. It's where offerings were made to God on behalf of the people. It was the main center of worship for Israel. So if you're going to make a statement, <laughs> where do you go? During Passover to the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Yet, what happens here, uh, the religious leaders had, even though this was the religious place, the religious center for all the people, the religious leaders had allowed it to be corrupted by allowing, uh, become a place of commerce, okay? They, all, they were allowing people to set up these stalls around, see that area that's around the, the area there, that the portico in, in the shade there? They were letting them set up all these stalls, and we've seen the pictures, and you've seen it in the movies there, where people are selling things, and they're, they're selling animals, to people that are out of town travelers that need something to sacrifice. So they're selling it to them. Okay. And you needed specific money that was only temple money. So you had to have that exchanged. So that's what these people that were setting up all this stuff. Now we understand that it wasn't so much what these merchants were doing, you know, that displeased Jesus. Yes, there was definitely price gouging happening you know, people going, okay, I'll sell you this lamb. It's like, you know, it's like going to a Giants game. I want a Coke. What? You know, you know, it's like there were definite price gouging going on, but that wasn't the main reason that Jesus was so upset. What, what particularly upset or displeased Jesus and that prompted him to do what he was going to do there was the fact that they were allowed to do it inside the temple. It was because they were in there. You see, the temple was to be a holy place of prayer, a place when you walk in that place, oh, I'm going to focus on God. There was supposed to be no major distractions they were supposed to be able to just really live. That's why he quotes from there. He quotes from Isaiah, my house will be a house of prayer. So kind of almost when you walk in, you want to start to feel like, oh, it's going to be a place of prayer. But can you imagine when you walked into the temple nowadays at that time? Oh, you know, animal stuff everywhere, animals everywhere. Hey, come on over here and buy minor cheaper, minor, you know, and all this stuff going on. They had totally corrupted what the temple was all about. You see, it was supposed to be a, a holy place of prayer where people could focus on God, but they couldn't anymore. Jesus was, what Jesus is saying here is that the religious leaders, what they were doing by allowing this shady commerce to go on and be conducted in the temple, they were showing indifference to the reverential purpose of the temple and to those that wanted to come and worship there. It was fine for those people. Typically, they used to sell that stuff all outside and around the temple. That's great. That was necessary. But Jesus' indictment on the religious leaders as they were letting it happen there, and they were ruining things for everybody else. Okay, it showed that they no longer truly cared about people's connection and their intimacy with God. They were abusing the temple by being more concerned by simply going through the religious motions. Okay, Jesus sees that. He calls them thieves. Okay? It's an abuse of the temple. He, and he, he claims that these people are becl- claiming, the, the priests are saying, oh, I'm religiously pure. I'm all that. And they come into the temple and say, hi, God, I'm with you, God. But the whole time they're, they're abusing the temple. It's kind of like us being willing to say, I'm going to live like crazy all week long, but you know what? I know I'm going to go to church on Sunday and ask God to forgive me, and it's all going to be good. Monday, party! Or Monday, live like I want to live, greedy, selfish, all that stuff. Come back on Sunday. Hello, brother. You know, that kind of stuff. And that's what he say. That's what these people are doing here. So you're like a den of thieves, of robbers. You're totally robbing everybody, yourself and everybody and me as well that you claim to be religiously pure. It's not happening. So Jesus, Jesus goes into action. So claiming the authority to keep his father's house holy, Jesus goes for it. This is what I want to keep his father's house holy. And I'm sure this isn't how people expected. You know, he's going to, look what you guys are doing. He's turning over tables. We don't know how many he overturned. If he, if he sprinted around the whole thing or just did a couple, we don't know. But his point was that you guys have desecrated my father's house. You've ruined the experience. You've ruined the whole idea. Now, this once again had to be so weird for the people to see this. This is not the kind of way that people were expecting the Messiah to establish his authority. Remember? Wait, he's going after the temple. Shouldn't you be overturning like the Roman guard's house? Shouldn't you be doing stuff over there? They're they're kind of confused at what he's doing here, I'm sure. I love what John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur writes about this. He said, our Lord is not concerned with the people's relation to Rome. He's concerned with the people's relation to God. That's his focus. His whole ministry here is given very clear perspective. He was concerned with how people worshiped. He was concerned with their relationship to God and not their relationship to earthly kingdoms. It was so important to him how it was with men and men and men as it was with men. It wasn't important. I'm sorry. It wasn't so important to him how it was with men and men. It was with men and God. That's why the Messiah came. They had it wrong. They said, no, you're going to turn the tables, right? It's going to be Rome, us, us, Rome now, right? Right? And Jesus says, no, you got to understand, I'm not really concerned about that relationship. I thought that's, the, that's not the one I'm worried about. They thought it was the prime one. He says, no, that doesn't matter at all. I want you and God, my Father, I want you to be right, to be in a right relationship. So once again, we see how the people, though, recognize uh, how, what Jesus does. Once again, um, they see what, how Jesus, they see his authority, for somehow they, they recognize his authority, though. Even though he's doing things totally backwards, they recognize his authority. And that's, isn't, that, isn't that the way it works sometimes with God? God does things we don't expect, and then in the afterwards we kind of go, oh, that was God. That was a God thing. We might not have thanked him in the meantime, but then while it was happening, then we go, oh, oh, okay, I get it. And this is what's happening here. Look what happens in verse 14 and 15. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So, Immediately after going on this holy tirade that Jesus goes on, okay, right away it says that he proceeds to heal blind people and lame people that were there. And we see this time, this time had children are recognizing his messianic authority and they begin to praise him. The kids start doing it now. So not only are the adults embracing Jesus' messianic authority, even though they don't quite get it, but they're recognizing it, resulting in praise. Now their kids are into it. Now their kids are doing it. So to the religious leaders, the children's praising Jesus as a result, even of doing these amazing things, they've just gone, it's just gone too far. Okay. You adults. uh, Okay. That's, you shouldn't be doing that, but you kids, come on. Well, the kids were probably doing what? Well, their parents. They caught on. Oh, this is what's happening. So the religious leaders, they're, they're incensed. They've had it. Look what he, look what happens in verse 16 and 17, our last two verses. And they said to him, do you hear what they, these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you not read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Okay. So the religious leaders are like, okay, hey, 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 Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying about you? These innocent children are being corrupted because do you hear what they're saying about you? What's Jesus' reply? Yep. I hear. I totally hear. And then he offers a justification for what they're doing. He grabs what they should know. Jesus is always great because it's the religious leaders. He grabs an Old Testament verse in Psalm 8. He, said, he, ta- he says, and he's referencing, it says, you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who opposed you. This is where Jesus is getting this from. Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard that children are going to be praising me. Oftentimes, in the Old Testament, strength is ascribed to God through the form of praise. Go look in Psalms. Go read Psalms and how oftentimes they're praising God and they're, they're, they're talking about his strength, but it's in the form of praise. Oftentimes, a psalmist would sing of God's strength when he was praising him. This psalm is talking about how the praise of God from even children can silence enemies, even from little kids, when the little kids are praising how much it can silence the enemies and how much power is in that. So Jesus is doing something very bold here and saying that the praise of God, the praise of God from this psalm is is as applicable to these children now praising him. One commentator I read, wrote, that says, the praise of Yahweh and the praise of Jesus are inseparable. Yahweh was the name of God. They're inseparable. You can, you, you want, they go along with one another. He's, Jesus saying, yes, it is right that they now see me as the one who is to be praised. I am the fulfillment of all that Israel has been hoping for. So, of course, even the children are going to be praising me. So what does this mean for us? Let me wrap this up. What does this mean for you and I? The truth is that when we come to truly believe in and embrace the ultimate sovereign rule of Jesus in our lives, when we have come to the point where we have allowed... Every area, I mean every area of our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our longings, when we allowed all those things to come under his sovereign control and his authority, really there can only be one response no matter what happens in all those areas of our life there's only one response. When he truly is king over my marriage, over my attitude, over my longings, everything, over my disappointments, if I'm allowing him to be sovereign like we talked about, really there's only one response. Praise. That's to be our response. Is a response is to be praise and wholehearted praise. I want to encourage you. I have to give a little homework every once in a while. I want to encourage you this week to to take time each day to reflect on the Lord's sovereign authority over not only just your life, but really over all things. And when you do that, take a moment to give thanks and to honor Him for who He is and all He has done. I mean, Set an alarm on your, I just started doing that, setting, setting a little alarm on my reminders on my phone. When that goes off, stop God and remember his sovereignty over everything and over my life and then praise him. And you could do that. Read scripture, speak scripture back to, to God. That's awesome. Speak scripture back to him. Sing praises to him. I have told you before, I go up on Higgins with my head, my earbuds in and I listen to worship music up in the hills there and I just, I just, I start crying almost every time to get away and make that time to do that. Listen to music that honors and glorifies His name. Let's be people of praise. Let's be people of praise because we have a King. We have a sovereign King who completely deserves it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. And Jesus, we're Grateful that we have a king that is sovereign, that has power and authority and control over all things, and you wield that power and authority and control in a way that is so loving, so kind, yet so powerful and so intentional for your good, for our good. In your glory. So thank you for that, Father. And now, God, as we as we go into communion, God, I just help us to reflect on those things, your sovereignty, and how great you are. And may we praise you, Father, with our lips, with our hearts, and with our minds. In Christ's name. Amen.